you ever had a challenging cultural experience? Two thousand and four. I'm flying to the Far East for the first time. I'm going to visit South Korea. I'm going to be the guest of some Christians in that country. And I arrive at the airport, I'm warmly greeted, and I'm taken by my host to my first meal in a restaurant. I've just come off the aeroplane and I arrive in South Korea. First thing I notice is there are no chairs. Uh, Because in this particular restaurant, people sit on the floor. They either kneel or squat on the floor, neither of which position I find very easy to do for a long period of time. So anyway, then I'm faced with the food. There are approximately 10 or 12 containers on the table containing a variety of things, only one of which I recognize. And that's rice. It's simply impossible to know what is in those containers and it would be extremely rude to ask the host to go through all ten. Some of them had fish in them. There were certainly some crabs around in different places. I didn't think they were alive. But having chosen my food, I was faced with an even greater challenge. Chopsticks. So here is my cultural challenge. I'm sitting in the most uncomfortable position I can imagine, eating food that I've no idea what it is, but I can't even get it in my mouth (laughs) without great difficulty. Fortunately, my compassionate hosts at an early stage intervened by going to the restauranteur and saying, it's a Westerner, they need a knife and fork. (laughs) And this was duly presented on a plate And my day was saved, but some of those things were very hard to eat, I must say. (laughs) But it's a great tactic when you have a cultural challenge with food, and that is smile and swallow. (laughs) The thing is, just swallow things whole. And while you're swallowing, breathe through your mouth. That's the best way. Then you can keep smiling, the taste eludes you, and you just hope that the outcome in your stomach is going to be reasonably compatible with health and well-being. You know, you can't guarantee it, but that's what you've got to do. We live in a world of many cultures. And one of the things that I've noticed recently, particularly in the last decade, traveling around the country meeting many Christians, is more and more Christians are culturally disorientated. They feel that the world in this country that we're in now is moving further and further away from a world they feel comfortable with. And so we're going to explore what this means. We're going to try and work out what is actually happening, try and get a bit of cultural orientation, and we're going to focus today on the question of people's beliefs. Later on in the series, we're going to talk about relationships, we're going to talk about materialism, we're going to talk about technology. Today we're going to talk a little bit just about belief. Now if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible we have a clue, two clues, which I want to just read to you. They're very well-known clues, but just to remind us, to help us to get orientated. Genesis 1, verse 26, coming up on the screen now. Then God said, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The point I want to make from this is when mankind was created, he was given the responsibility for all the rest of the created world, to rule over it. This doesn't mean in a selfish sense, but it means to rule on behalf of the creator God, to actually do something with the created world around, to do something with it, to create what we might call culture, society, development, technology, arts, relationships, family, language, Society is built on a mandate from God given to all mankind and there's a very particular focus of this that comes and we haven't got time to go into this in detail but I just alert this to you as an interesting point in Genesis 2 describing the creation of Adam specifically and the Garden of Eden. And <coughs> God's command to Adam, and, uh, Adam was to... Um, to go into the Garden of Eden, amongst all the other moral commands we haven't got time to go into now, but one of the command in the Garden of Eden is to go and to cultivate it. Do you remember that? To actually get on and cultivate it. To work and take care of it. There in Genesis 2. That's a very, very interesting thing. Do you know what? That's a cultural command. And the word culture in English was first used of agriculture which has a real affinity to this Garden of Eden situation. When, this, when the words so agriculture, horticulture, viticulture, arboriculture, all these words that come out to do with uh, cultivation and the development of the land, it's, it's taking the material that God has given and shaping it for productivity. We then began to use the word culture to talk about the shaping of the mind a little bit later on in our society, but now when we use the word culture, we're really talking about the totality of our human society and how we function together. That is our culture. But God always wanted humans to develop and create culture to make the world more productive, to make human society more productive and happy and resourceful and developed. It was always his intention from the beginning that this should be the case. But things went wrong. And so everything man develops has flaws in it. Whether it's technology, whether it's music, whether it's relationships, whether it's national government, whether it's agriculture, we find flaws developing everywhere. And so an interesting thing that Christians have been beginning to think about more recently in our country, but they hadn't been thinking about it much beforehand, is that one of the responsibilities of Christians is to be productive in their society, to actually do something good for other people. As well as witnessing to Christ and bringing people to Christ is to actually contribute positively to the culture around us. And I think that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And that applies to almost everybody in this room. There's things you can do and are doing that shape people's lives for the good. And guess what? Lizzie White's a brilliant example. Because what she's doing, amongst other things, through technology, 
one of the benefits of cultural development is technology, is taking the applications of water technology and applying it to the needs of poorer communities in a foreign country. Isn't that a wonderful thing to do? That's fulfilling part of the cultural mandate of the church and it's just an example that happened to be here this morning. We could give a hundred examples from our congregation. I wonder whether you ever think of your job or your work or your family or your street or your community or your hobby or sports or your voluntary activity in the church is actually part of a mandate of God to bring something good back into this world where culture tends to get um, negative and problematical. Now, Christians are disorientated <coughs> in our country because we feel things are sometimes running away from us and going in directions we don't feel entirely comfortable with. And I wonder how we got into this position. In the 1950s, in the era that I was born, by the way, I was at the very end of the 1950s, <laughs> very near the end of the 1950s, just to be clear, slightly before I was born, in the 1950s, many Christians predicted that we were on the verge of revival. The churches were full after the war. Demographic research suggests, statistical research, that church attendance was the highest level ever in Britain in the 1950s. And Billy Graham came to visit in 1955 and 1956. And when Billy Graham took over the Haringey Arena in London in 1955, an aggregate of two million people came to that arena. Two million. The next year he came to Glasgow... And the aggregate of the people who came to Glasgow over the weeks that he was in Glasgow in 1956 is 2.6 million. These are probably the largest Christian gatherings that the UK has known in modern times that I can think of. And people thought that our country was heading towards a revival. I have friends in London who said at the time people were singing hymns in the underground in the mid-50s. The evangelists came in. What they didn't notice was this. While part of, the church, part of the culture was still embedded in the Christian message and the churches had filled up because of the war <clears throat> and because of the reconsideration that the war brought and the suffering, while this was going on over here, the majority of our citizens were in a completely different place. They were gradually getting detached from the church because they were being fed by another series of ideas. Evolution, extreme liberalism, political radicalism, ideas that have been sown in our country in the 19th century by the likes of Karl Marx, John Stuart Mill, Charles Darwin and others. So that's the 1950s. The 1960s, everything suddenly changed. We had what sociologists call a sudden cultural revolution. Suddenly, completely out of the blue, abortion was liberalised. Feminism challenged the status quo. The student movements 
radical student movements and riots started challenging authority. Homosexuality was decriminalized. Free love was the story of the day. Contraception, free love, detaching sexual relationships from marriage. For the first time in our culture, this became a normative idea that people were beginning to think about generically, not just a few people on the fringe of the culture. People were talking about this as the potential mainstream for the future in the 1960s. What's happening? Radical political left-wing ideas were taking place. Pop music became the cultural mainstream as opposed to magazines and newspapers. The Beatles and all the others swept the board culturally. And guess what? Despite the expectations of the 1950s, it turned out that only a minority of people were in that stream in the Christian worldview, open to the gospel. Despite that, the majority of people were heading in exactly the opposite direction. They were heading down a secular road. And they were heading down a secular road that was going to gather momentum for decades to come and has been gathering momentum right up until the day that I'm speaking now in 2017. And guess what happened? The church began to decline quite suddenly. The numbers declined from the 50s. They've gone down every decade ever since. The status of the church began to get more marginal to society, less at the centre, more on the margins. More and more church leaders began to question the authority of the Bible and the authenticity of the deity of Christ and the atonement. And people began to get very confused in their theology. And some people even said, we need a multi-faith approach and let's draw, draw Christianity together with other religions as they became more prominent in our society. And so the church paradoxically from the 1950s, made a sudden accelerated descent, generally speaking. With three exceptions. Number one, the black majority churches. They're growing all the time. Number two, the Anglican Renewal Movement, with the Alpha Course and HTB and New Wine and all those other things. They're growing They're developing. And number three, the new church movement, which we're part of, which accelerated during that period. So what you have in the country, if you look at it today, you've got three movements, and I'm generalising, there's a few other bits we could add in here, three movements that are moving forward, and most of the church that's going downhill. Does that make any sense to you? That's actually what's happening demographically. We've been in strange and turbulent cultural times and it's beginning to worry Christians quite a lot. What's been going on with the majority of people who are detached from Christianity? Their culture doesn't have the Christian worldview. Basically what happened in the 1960s was that the Christian worldview was dethroned. The Christian worldview says there's a creator. There's a need for God. There's a redeemer. There's accountability. We're created in his image to to be his worshippers. And we have a destiny in him or outside of him according to our response. This is a Christian worldview in a nutshell. Well, most people have jettisoned that today. They don't believe those things anymore. 2016 in America, a white, middle height, that's five foot six or five foot eight, interviewer, male, went on a major university campus in America 
and he interviewed some students just along the street as they were walking along, did a bit of a social experiment. Some intelligent American students in a prestigious university in the USA. First of all, he said to them, what would their response be if he said he was a woman? Their replies, good for you. Really? I don't have a problem with that. Then he said, what would their response be if he, if he told them he was Chinese? Well, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Be who you are. Oh, I'm, I'd maybe say you had some Chinese ancestor. Another one said, hmm, I'd have a lot of questions, but because on the outside, I'd, I, I assume you'd be a white man. And he pressed on with his questions. He said, what would you say if I said I'm seven years old and I want to enter into the first grade, that's primary school, equivalent of seven years old? What would you say? These are people doing degrees, by the way. I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I wouldn't really bother me that much. I wouldn't go out of my way to tell you you're wrong. I'd just be, okay, if he wants to be a seven-year-old. Another said, if you feel seven a heart, then so be it. Good for you. And if you feel the first grade is mentally where you should be, then I feel there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say as long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing any harm to people, I don't have any problem with that. Last question. Bearing in mind what I told you about his height. What would you say if I told you I was six foot five? One of them didn't even answer that question. That I would question, said another. Another one, uh, uh, why, why, why would you question? Because you're not. I mean, you don't look six foot five. Another student, if you truly believe you're six foot five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't really matter to me. Uh, if you think you're taller than you are. So you wouldn't be willing to tell me I'm wrong? No, I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. I feel it's not my place to tell another human being to say something wrong or to draw lines or boundaries, said one. No, I mean, I wouldn't go like that. You're wrong. Because again, it doesn't really bother me what you think about your height or anything. So the interviewer says, so I could be a Chinese woman? Sure but I can't be six foot five Chinese woman? Yes, maybe not. If you thoroughly debated me and explained why you felt you were six foot five, then maybe I would be very open to you saying you're six foot five Chinese or even a woman. That interview's on YouTube. It's had two million viewings. What's happened? We've abandoned a worldview which had an external authority and an external, an external narrative. God, the Creator, and His relationship with the world and His redemption and His Son. And we haven't yet worked out which worldview to put in its place. And if that happens, 
The default position for some people is to make it up themselves. So truth is what I think it is. And so I can be six foot five. I can be Chinese. I could be female. I could be seven. I could be going into first grade and no one can question that. Now, these are only students. They don't have any social responsibility. But if they're even beginning to think like that, how are those ideas going to influence them when they are responsible citizens in society in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time? Do you recognize any of this? This is a wave that's coming towards us. And you've just seen the beginning of it. It's accelerating. It's because our culture is in crisis. Now, of course, there are many people who are not going down that road. They believe other things very firmly. I understand that. I'm giving you a few cultural headlines. We're prioritizing the individual. We're saying reality is what I think it is. Reality is what's good for me. Truth is truth for me. I wonder what St. Paul would have made of this. Now, the nearest example we can give is his visit to the city of Athens, which is coming up now. Athens was the multicultural, intellectual centre of the ancient world, full of philosophies, ideas, academic schools, religions, free thinkers... People came there with all sorts of different ideas. You could think whatever you want. It was called a free city. Um, People just sort of let it all hang out in Athens. Do you know places like that around the world? San Francisco used to be that when I was young, when when I visited there. Some parts of the world you have these areas where everything's just let it all hang out. You can do what you like. You can think what you like. This is the epicenter of a culture. Paul arrived in Athens... And I'm going to have to summarize a little bit of this. Let me just summarize it for you. He he looked around the city and what he saw was a religious group in the synagogue. He saw philosophers in the marketplace, Stoics and Epicureans. He saw lots of idols and shrines everywhere. And he noticed that people came into the city just to talk about ideas. They just enjoyed talking about ideas. And he got into debate with them. And he started talking to people in the marketplace and he started saying, hang on a minute, there's a different way of looking at reality. He started mentioning Jesus and the resurrection. And they they said, okay, Paul, look, this is really getting out of hand. You're really provoking us. We need to have a big discussion. And they took took him to a place called the Areopagus, which was the debating chamber of ancient Athens, where all the ideas were heavily debated. So he was given the speech in the debating chamber. It's a bit like the Cambridge Union Society debating chamber. Everyone came to listen to new ideas. And here was Paul. And what I want to leave you with this morning is Paul's strategy when people had lost their moorings and were believing all sorts of different things and it was all chaos. What was his strategy? What things were most important to tell people and almost every person who heard this speech, as far as we can tell, had never, ever heard the gospel before. No Christian missionaries had come to Athens. No church had been planted there to our knowledge. 
Paul, it appears, to the best of our knowledge, was the first preacher ever to come to this city and it was full of all these crazy ideas. I conclude this talk with just reading to you the text of what he read. And uh, we're going to go uh, to slide number nine, Tom. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you're very religious, for I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, for this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Point number one. Paul's fundamental assertion, which we need to really hear, is there is a creator. There is a creator. Now that message, by the way, is one of the most important messages that the church needs to recapture in days when men and women are filling their minds with the ideas that they, they, they came out of a spontaneous process of self-creation, which we call atheistic evolution. He challenged the ancient equivalent of that by saying, there is a creator. You are created, by the way. So this is going to be a massive battleground in years to come, and it already is. Verse 26, from, every, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far away from us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Point number two, there is a creator. He's not in you, but he's not far away from you. There isn't an innate God inside, but he's not far away. And if you seek him, you can find him. Second message to a secular world. First message, there is a creator. This creates a sense of accountability and perspective on who a human is. My autonomy to define my whole existence that I described to you before in that YouTube clip just as an example becomes immediately challenged if I suddenly think there is a creator. I was made to be a certain way or a certain type of person. That's a huge challenge. But the second thing is that creator isn't far away. He can be accessed by humans. Verse 29, therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think of that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human beings in skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Point three to a secular world, to an unbelieving world, the resurrection of Jesus. 
is the key sign. A historical, real, supernatural, unique, unrepeatable event in human history that points to the fact that the connection between the creator and the created is going to come through that man and what he did beforehand. Now this is Paul, 2,000 years ago in Athens, talking to an audience who had no background in Judaism, the Bible, they hadn't heard of Jesus. And it was one speech. And it's interesting the things that he highlighted in this one speech. There is a creator. He can be known, but he can only be known through the one who he sent. Let's go to slide number 14. In conclusion, how can we respond? There's so many things I'm raising. This is such a brief talk. There's so much more to be said. We'll be having seminars that relate to this in due course. But I want to encourage the church in four things that are really important. I think we really do need to work out what's going on in culture. We really do need to understand the power of the ideas that have been sown in our culture that are forcing people down a different track and they're going down an opposite track to the gospel. We need to work out why. Much more could be said on that. But secondly, we need to be confident in the public truth of the gospel. Paul said there's a public truth. There's a creator. He can be known. He raised his son from the dead. This is public truth. And so the only hope for the church is to fight as strongly as we can against the idea that this truth is just my truth. It's just what I feel. No, 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 no. I feel it because it's true. The inner witness of the Spirit is not the number one definition of truth. It's the external physical reality of the truth that is the number one thing. There is a creator. It is impossible for this world to exist without a creator. He can be known. He's not far away from us. And he's given us the message by which he can be known through his son. And that's why Alpha is so important if we really earth this rather high polluting conversation down to, to, the, to the baseline. When we put on Alpha and Terry hosted, basically we are saying, and I'm supporting Terry in this, the gospel is public truth. Because all those truths are central to Alpha. And many other forms of evangelism, of course. And then we need to remember that our individual lifestyles and our church community lifestyles are the bridge to our culture, all is not lost. Because there's different movements in this country that are growing. And the movements that are growing are capturing these truths, they're interpreting culture and they're getting on with the job. And we're part of that movement. So let's get on with the job. Let's not be overawed by the cultural trends we see around us. They're going to be complicated. They're going to be hard to navigate for many decades to come. But let's be confident in the public truth of the gospel and let's support people who are engaging strategically in shaping culture, whether they be teachers or, or water engineers or builders of community or social activists or apologists or people who invite their friends to Alpha. Let's stand. Just pray.
and then we'll end. Time has gone. Just a brief moment. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you because some of you have been really stirred this morning. Some of your thinking has been challenged. Some of your thinking has been stimulated. It's on the right track, but it's just underlined things that you already know. Father, we just want to come before you. We want to say with all our hearts that we believe these things. You are our creator. And we were created for you. And it's through your son that we found you. And Lord, we want the gospel and your kingdom to advance in our nation. We don't accept the counsel of doom, pessimism, but we do realize it's a big challenge. And I pray you'll help our church corporately, help us individually in our personal lives, in our vocations and jobs and families and friendships to live out some of these realities. Give backbone to us through everything we've heard today, Lord. Give us confidence. Give us wisdom. And give us your spirit in abundant measure, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.